Welcome to the Staying Free podcast. In this episode, I talked to Dan, also known as King Bingo on Twitter. Dan put out a really interesting Twitter thread, which I think is one of the most comprehensive breakdowns of the links between the collapse of the financial system and everything that we're seeing with uh, the kind of restricting of freedoms worldwide, central bank digital currencies, vaccine passports that I guess come under the common umbrella of the Great Reset. I knew that this was going to be a difficult conversation because we're dealing with such kind of complex territory and it's really hard to kind of keep the conversation exactly on track when there's so many avenues to go down. So I apologize if the conversation darts about a little bit or if there's areas that aren't really properly fleshed out. I definitely want to do a follow up with Dan because I feel like some of these topics that we went into, we only really just scratched the surface and they really deserve a bit more fleshing out. So I'll definitely try to do that down the line. I definitely recommend that people follow Dan on Twitter and in particular read that pinned tweet that we refer to. It might be worth actually reading that pinned tweet before listening to this conversation because it's probably the most concise breakdown that I've seen on some of the topics that we've discussed today. So I hope that you enjoy the conversation and get some value from it. And as always, feel free to reach out on Twitter if you have any comments or suggestions. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you came to my attention initially um, from your Twitter thread, which became really popular, uh, which was uh, all about the link between kind of fiat money and the Great Reset. Um, So before we go into that, because I really would like to go into that Twitter thread, but before we go into that, do you want to just give a bit of an introduction to yourself? Yeah, sure. So uh, my background is that I'm mainly a finance guy. I spent um, 20 years working in venture capital. Um, and, you know, what, what that gives you, I mean, I had an economics um, sort of training before that, but what that gives you, of course, is that you are used to all the time um, meeting founders um, and CEOs of companies who will give you a story about what's going on. Um, and you would be the world's worst investor if you just based your investment decisions on the story that they give you. Of course, what you've got to do is you've got to go and you've got to look at the numbers and you've got to verify, you've got to see, um, you know, what actions they're taking um, and how the market's responding to that, and then make your decision based on the on the whole category of information you get from that. Um, so, of course, I approach politics from from the same basis. You know, it's it's one thing the politicians coming out and telling me that they're doing something for a certain reason. Um, but my natural instinct is, of course, to always go and look for what the numbers tell me. Um, and what their actions tell me and, you know, where, where the money is going. You know, you, you can follow the science, um, but invariably you, you end up um, straight back at the money. Were you always a political sceptic? No, I wasn't. So, I mean, actually, I was involved in um, politics, um, you know, back in the day, straight out of university. Um, in, in fact, straight out of university, one of the th- first things that I was working on at the time was the, um, the Michael Patello leadership campaign. Um, and I found myself working on a on a desk next to Pretty Patel for about three or four weeks. Um, she delivered absolutely nothing, by the way. She had lots of conversations and made sure that every time somebody walked into the room, they knew her name, but she didn't actually deliver any actual work. Um, I don't know if that's changed since. Um, and, and actually, I, I probably would have ended up having a um, political career um, had Patello won. But he didn't. 
Um, so I went off into finance and you know, I, I stayed loosely in touch. So I know some of the characters in the, in the current government, um, but I, I, I wasn't sort of actively involved after that point. Um, and, and I was sort of, you know, e even up until the last election, I sort of believed in the political system as an ability to affect change. Um, and I've got to say that is that is utterly gone at this point. I do not think the system can be saved. I don't think it's a question of personalities. I, I think the whole system at this point is so rotten. Um, I, I have just completely lost faith in the lot of it. Yeah, it's um, kind of occurred to me that the corruption in the Western nations was kind of hidden for a long time. We always looked at, you know, um, countries that I guess were a bit poor and we'd say, oh, look at how corrupt that country is. But we just had kind of a different class of corruption, right? And it, and it was a bit easier to hide. And now I feel like it's kind of all bubbled to the surface. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've got a good idea what's going on here. I don't think it's, I don't think it's money corruption. Um, I think it's, it's system corruption. And, you know, it, well, it is money corruption, but but it's the form of debt corruption. And, and that's largely, you know, what my, my, what my thread was all about. You know, the, the essential gist is, is that the, the political institutions that we have are tied to the money system. The money system is going to collapse. And as a result of that, you know, what you have is essentially politicians who, um, in order to protect the system that they're heading up, necessarily have to move further and further away from reality of people's revealed preferences. Um, and that's why you've got this in increasing political disconnect. Now, we're at the point now where they can either save the system, which they themselves are a part of, and, and they might you know, think they have legitimate reasons for doing that. Um, but, but in order to do that increasingly, the only way they can get there is by ever more money printing and, and the taking of ever more freedoms from us. Um, and so what, what I sort of essentially was laying out in my thread that you mentioned there was a sort of mechanism of, of how that's come to pass, you know, why it's happening, um, you know, the, the scale of it, um, and a small amount of what we can do about it. I mean, that, I mean that's, that's presumably what you're picking up on. Yeah, definitely. So I guess let's start from there then. Let's start from um, that thesis. Could you give a bit of a summary? I know that it's quite a kind of complicated um well, it's a complicated thread, but it's a complicated topic, generally speaking. But are you able to just give um, as best you can a kind of summary of what you think, how you think this breaks down? Because I think that's one of the things that a lot of people are struggling to do is they're looking at all of these kind of symptoms, essentially, and they're not able to kind of say, well, what, what's at the root there? Uh, and I think your thread really broke that down as good as I've seen. So if you wouldn't mind just kind of going into that and uh, giving us that rundown. So the, the essential problem is that the debt levels have got too high. The reason they've got too high is because um, we have a fiat money system. Fiat money is basically backed by nothing more than the promise of politicians. You know, before 1971, we're on a gold-backed system. Um, and, and, you know, to cut the, sh cut the history very short, um, there was a war. Following the war, the US had all of the gold. Um, the other countries realized that that was going to be a bit of a problem. Um, and the US said, no, don't worry. What we do is we will keep all of the gold. And in return, we will give you pieces of paper with a with a picture of the president on it. And that will be as good as gold. Um, and, you know, look, and, and if you're worried, you can exchange those pieces of paper for uh, for the gold at any time you want. And that only lasted uh, a few years. Um, and then 
that that link between the gold and paper money was was severed in 1971, I think it was. Um, and since then, we've been on a, on a purely paper-based money system. Now, as it turned out, that that worked out quite well because what it enabled um, the money system to do is expand. Um, you could basically create, um, in addition to the actual money that existed, you could create credit as well. Credit is, for the most part, um, indistinguishable. So actually, most of what people think of as money is credit. You know, if if, if I give you £100, you are indifferent as to whether I saved up that money or whether I borrowed it from the bank five minutes earlier. From, from your perspective, it, it spends about the same. But look, I remember looking at um, the, the breakdown of these numbers shortly after 2008. Um, and I use the US because, you know, they're the biggest driver of economics across the world. Um, and money was about three trillion. Um, and credit was about 50 trillion. So the disparity between money and credit was absolutely huge. Now, when you look at it in that way, it becomes obvious that credit cannot be paid off. Obviously, you cannot pay off 50 trillion with 3 trillion. And by the way, those are that I did that analysis shortly after 2008. So it's, it would have gone way up since then. God knows what the number is now, but it's, it's going to be a lot bigger than that now. Um, but it's a lot worse than that, because even back then, you could not pay off the interest without creating more credit. So basically, the system has to grow and grow. Now, I can come into more. I mean, there's a lot more detail that I didn't put in the thread. You know, I've been wondering about the best way um, uh, to get this message across. And, and, and at the moment, um, you know, podcasts, and until I can get around to writing a book or something, you know, podcasts are probably the best way of doing it. But part of the reason why that expanding credit system worked to everybody's advantage was because the um, essentially the prosperity equation the economy was running on and the incentives that people were responding to was an ever-increasing capital base. So you can think about this as, you know, from, you know, 1950s, 60s, 70s, and so on. The way that we essentially secured economic growth was investing additional capital, but throughout additional resources. Um, you know, more factories, more ships, that kind of thing. So if you've got a monetary system that expands, you know, that, that works out very well. Um, and it worked out very well for politicians because what they could do is they could spend all of the tax money that they took in. They could then borrow money on top of that. Um, and nobody really minded, not even the politicians who 20 years down the line had to pay off that debt from the previous politician. The reason they didn't mind is because by then the capital base has expanded. So the amount of debt that they inherited was reasonably small. And of course, they can do the same trick. So you might think, OK, why can't that system work forever? The reason it can't work forever is because there has been a, a paradigm shift. The dynamic of how prosperity is generated has changed. And it changed with the sort of advent of the sort of the latest technological revolution, the digital age, essentially. The probably the clearest example of I can give you of that is um, Blockbuster Video. So Blockbuster Video was the old model, capital expansion. You know, they at their peak had something like, I think it was 9,000 stores, about 85,000 employees. And the whole model, the way that they generated their prosperity was that unit aggregation, one more unit, one more store spread out. 
And you can see, and you know, we all experienced this, the moment when the prosperity equation changed from being unit aggregation to being unit efficiency. And that manifested itself in the form of Netflix. And what they did is they essentially drove the marginal cost of video distribution to zero. So blockbusters were suddenly in the situation where their 9,000 stores were now a massive liability. Even if they wanted to pivot and change the new dynamic, they wouldn't have been able to do it because they were sitting on that capital base that was a, a cost, essentially. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it's hardly just um, blockbuster that this happened to. I mean, it, I mean, it happens in basically everything in, in technology. So, you know, photos. You used to have to go and get them processed and buy the film and all that kind of stuff, and now photos are essentially free. Um, essentially, the whole of Silicon Valley uh, exists to drive the cost of the largest possible markets to zero. That's what they do when you boil it down. Um, you know, potentially the next big thing will be uh, what Tesla is doing with automation. Uh, they want to drive the, the marginal cost of driving to zero. That is going to be enormously impactful because, of course, the, uh, the biggest job category for unskilled men in the world is driver. So these technologies are having huge change, but see what they're doing. What these technologies do is they move you from a capital expansion model of prosperity to a deflation model of prosperity. So what we've got is we've got a monetary system that must grow. As I've described, you cannot even pay the interest without creating additional capital. But the method of prosperity, so therefore the incentives that all of us respond to, including businesses, has flipped to being a, uh, a contraction. So a unit efficiency model instead, a deflationary approach. So what that basically gets you to is, I, I think, the World Economic Forum, the Bank of International Settlements, and the other sort of the, the big institutions that actually have a brain. Na national governments, by the way, they don't. They're, they're not smart enough to figure this out. But there are institutions out there who figured out what, you know, what, what these problems will lead to. Uh, they recognised that their system was going to come to an end. So what they needed was a, um, a bloody good reason to massively expand the amount of money in the system. And it's not the sort of thing that you can just do. You can't just, you know, announce on a regular Tuesday, by the way, we are printing 40% of all the money that has ever existed today. You know, people might reasonably ask why. Just before I move on to that, that point, yeah. you mentioned that the novel factor, which meant that this kind of continual process of government um, borrowing, essentially kind of, you know, 0% rates and government uh, debt accumulation, the, the, the factor that changed that was the kind of, information um economy right why why is it that, that information economy um I, I didn't see the link there why the information econ economy kind of breaks that um that chain so that the the prosperity equation is something like this it's something like um input per unit output per unit so the efficiency of the unit times the number of units and for the last oh, 200 years the um, dominant factor there has been 
you know, the that unit of aggregation. Um, it's about building scale. Um, you know, nation states themselves are a perfect manifestation of this. You know, around 200 years ago, the you know the, the small states of Europe started to disappear, and everything started to aggregate up into into larger and larger units. And you and you see this in in politicians thinking them themselves. They they see everything as you know solutions are only effective at a sort of global managerial level. You know, we have to have one rule set that that governs global trade across the world. You know, the current big thing that the the Davos set are doing at the moment are trying to agree minimum global tax rates because they cannot have um, individuals doing their own thing. They have to apply a sort of one-size-fits-all model. And all the time that you are in a unit aggregation, so a capital expansion mode, a monetary system that also expands, those two fit together. There is no conflict between a uh, an economy that must have capital expansion in order to create prosperity to a monetary system that must expand. So th this wasn't particularly a problem until the, uh, the prosperity equation flipped so that now it's all about reducing cost and driving marginal cost down to zero. So it's the same prosperity equation, but the emphasis has changed from unit, um, you know, the number of units being the, the driving factor to unit efficiency being the, the driving factor. And that's what technology does. Technology is all about, like I say, if you, if you think about basically any um, Silicon Valley venture, when you boil it down, it is all about trying to drive marginal, marginal cost down to zero. That, that's essentially what they do. So the conflict between the incentives that we all respond to now and the system of government that we have in the monetary system we have, those two things are now incompatible. So in order for this monetary system to survive, it has to either find a way of coercing people to not pursue um, what for them is their, their best outcome, their most efficient outcome, where they get more for less, which you can't do. You, you can't make people move away from that. People always want to spend their money the most efficiently way that they, where they can possible. Or you've got to cover up the cracks somehow. Um, and the only way you can do that, if, if there isn't that underlying capital expansion going on, is you have to print the money. And that's where we are now. So if you remember really early on in the crisis, I mean, it was uh, it, it was kind of odd. I, I remember within the first few weeks of um, you know, the, 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 the scaremongering that came out, um, all of a sudden all the media channels were talking about the abolition of cash. You know, this would be a great time to... And that, and that was kind of odd because, you know, you know, we've just been told that if you leave your house, you're probably going to die of some nasty virus. And all of a sudden they, 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 and it was, and it was like on a dime because I mean, I'm very sensitive to noticing these things in just one day, the word had obviously gone out. We are going to push the abolition of cash. And that was really odd. You know, clearly um, there was an agenda lined up and it had been decided to roll that out. And then not long after that, we started to get the money printing. And the money printing was huge. I mean, to put this in perspective, 40% of all the money that has ever existed was printed in the last two years. The, 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 the scale is simply phenomenal. Now, what that does is it does prop up the old system, but it's only gonna do it for so long. Um, and, and most of that money, 
it has not gone to you know the people. I mean, there was the, the whole um, you know Joe Biden, um, or no, it was the it was the it was a Trump checks at the time, the stimulus where people got like twelve hundred dollars or whatever it was. Um, I, don't, I don't think we had anything quite that direct here in the UK. We had um, you know we had some stimulus for businesses and so on. That was an absolute tiny part of the of the new money that was essentially just created. Um, most of it just went into straight into the finance sector and, and, and the government. They you know they just issued a whole load of bonds. Um, you know they they bought back other bonds. Um, it was effectively sort of money laundered through the financial system. Um, so financial assets went up considerably. The you know, stock market went up considerably, uh, but you know very little of it. Went, went to the individual. In fact, the individual is now paying for that because the money itself has been um, devalued. Um, so effectively, that is, a, that is a silent theft. You know, if, if you've got £100 in the bank and you experience 40% deflation, you know, you still got the £100 there, but it buys 40% less. You have effectively been robbed £40. But most people don't see it like that. All they see is they've still got the hundred pounds in the bank, so they're fairly oblivious to it. But you know what we've seen is an absolutely enormous wealth transfer, you know, from the average man up. So the you know the essential point of a thread that I put out was, you know, they know the system's broken. They know they need something else. Um, what they uh, have decided on is central bank digital currencies. But all that is effectively that is that is fiat money 2.0. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to restart the engine effectively. So just on a couple of points you raised there, um, one of them was the switch to kind of away from cash essentially and moving towards kind of digital currencies. And I definitely kind of recall there was a big push for this. And I put this down to, and correct me if you think that I'm wrong on this interpretation of why there's this big push, is because as interest rates um, fall to zero and potentially go negative, right? Which, which actually means that if you put your money in the bank, rather than the next year, you're going to have more money. You're going to have 1% or 2%. You're actually going to have like negative 1% um, because it actually is accounting for the fact that cash is being devalued and that the kind of um, the monetary base is expanding. So you actually get a negative interest rate. And inflation does that already. You know, negative interest rates would just be, you know, a, a second inflation on top of it, but just one that people would actually notice. Right. It would be, but it would be one which is, and this brings me to the point about cash, it would be one that is escapable if you go to the bank and you withdraw all of your money in cash. Because if you were to do that, they would have to come around to your house to take that, uh, if they decide, you know, to take that money off you. If it's in the bank, then you're essentially. Um, they're taking your money, and, and and it is essentially just just theft. Like we can call it what it is. It's just taking money from people's bank accounts. But if people withdraw it as cash and hide it under their under their bed or whatever, then you can actually then you're not subject essentially to negative interest rates. Do you think that that has a part to play, or do you think that I'm misinterpreting that? No, I mean you're you're right in what you're describing, but it from their point of view, that's fairly small fry. They they don't particularly care. Um, what individuals do. And actually, I don't think they're going to do negative interest rates anyway, because inflation effectively is negative interest rates. Inflation is the process by which money gets removed from your bank account. Um, even if it looks like you've still got the same amount of money there, it just has less purchasing power. But actually, no, the individual savings 
are a really small part of of what they're concerned with actually um most of what something like the interest rate is affecting is overnight deposits from the banks um which is sort of measured in the you know the hundreds of billions or trillions of you in the us um and, and and that's the far bigger factor now the the advantage of cbdc's is is more that they are surveillance so you can think of it like this think of tax revenues as this equation economic activity that you are aware of times the tax rate so in a world where you've got the current system where it's a little bit opaque who's doing what um how the money is being moved around the economic activity that you're aware of is is less than 100% so any attempt to tax that is is by definition going to be smaller one of the key things that a, a cbdc does is because though all the money is held and process i mean it, it is the central bank's money and you are just assigned a certain amount of it that you can access but all of the money actually stays with the central bank um so they have 100% view of what's going on so they see all financial activity um and because they see everything whatever tax rate you apply to 100% is always going to be higher than taxing any lower percentage um so from from an economic aspect you know it's it's just a good way of driving up tax tax and you know the way they will think about it will be is is it sort of kills the the black economy because the surveillance goes much deeper than that um if you have a central bank digital currency then they can control how you spend it so it becomes very easy for them to say um you know look you guys you're killing the planet so you can only spend 50 pounds a week on fuel or petrol or whatever uh you can only spend 40 pounds a week on red meat anything more than that and you're killing the planet so they will they will just basically stop your money they 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 can put a a, a flag on certain purchases to to stop you from doing this you know this is already happening in the happening in china um and a central bank digital currency which is what they're they're talking about now um and they are probably going to need because the old financial system is going to collapse um you know gives them effectively total control it's up to them whether they use it or not um and on day one they probably won't in a country like the uk they you won't have um a chinese style social credit system you know the day after launch um but 30 years down the line politicians will come along and they will see the power of it and and they will start introducing things for the best of incent for the be- for the best uh, best reasons you know it will be um you know directing um additional capital to deprived areas or something like that but they they will start playing with the tool and they will recognize its power um and invariably that will become misused over time I and mean, it's just absolute inevitability so just taking a step back for a minute because i i really want to try to bridge this gap that a lot of people have including myself um you know between the events of covid and i'm not referring here to covid the illness i'm talking about covid the kind of global political paradigm the events of that and fiat collapse so what how did we go from this kind of fiat collapse impending um or, or current how did we go from that to this kind of paradigm now that we have of 
kind of COVID totalitarianism, what was the government's incentive um, for the former, which led to the actions of the latter? Does does that make sense? Yeah. So, look, I, I don't actually believe that they are directly related. So, you know, in, if, I mean, if what you're essentially asking me is the age old debate that we've been having the whole way through this, is it a conspiracy or is it a cock up? Um, I say it's yes. Yes to both. And the reason for that is, is, okay, let me, let's take it back. So first of all, we should touch upon the media. You know, what, what is the media's business model and what has it been for some time? I mean, if you think about it, modern media is set up to, at all times, bypass your prefrontal cortex, your reasoning and your rationale, and go straight to your amygdala. You know, anger, anxiety, fear, envy, jealousy. Every, every story is that. Now, is the media doing that because it has been consciously engineered by dark forces to keep us fighting amongst ourselves? Or is it doing it because if it's stimulating the amygdala as opposed to the prefrontal cortex, it's driving a better click rate, getting more eyeballs? I suspect it, it probably is as simple as they are responding to their incentives, which is to, to get a better click rate. Um, and that that process has probably been running to a greater or lesser extent since they made the switch to 24-hour news and now is extremely the case in, in, in digital media. So that's factor one. You've got media, which is incentivized to push fear and emotional responses. So that's, that's one thing. Second factor, um, politicians these days, because of what I've described about the prosperity equation, Politicians these days do not understand that on any level. Politicians are not leaders. They have no idea how to create prosperity. Politicians these days are actors. They are people who have acted the part and rose through the ranks to get where they are. Um, yeah, I mean, you can see this in Boris. He does not know what to do, but he has acted well enough to get into the to get the part. Biden is clearly this. Biden has clearly been selected by other powers who, who wish to manage him. And probably the purest possible example of this is, is Justin Trudeau. Although you could argue that actually that he's the only one who's doing it right, because it's a sort of open secret in the Canadian Liberal Party that uh, Trudeau doesn't make policy at all. You know, his, his best, best friend um, is a brilliant um, but quite ugly guy who recognised that he could never be Prime Minister, whereas he's got his good friend Justin, who is um, beautiful and incredibly stupid. So the two of them work together. Justin is the PR man, and then other people make the decisions in, in the background. So the whole generation of, of politicians these days are simply actors. Um, interestingly, whenever I speak to political people, uh, have you ever seen that series in the thick of it? No. It's it's a it's it's a sort of comedy about um, you know political people and how they're continually bouncing around reacting to events, and it's and it, what it shows is a, is a system which is utterly chaotic and always just simply responding. Um, and like I say, people people in in the uh, in the political system they always say this is exactly how it is. So you've got politicians or actors who don't know how to lead, who don't know how to make decisions. Then you've got the sort of effective policy makers. 
And these are people like the World Economic Forum, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Bank of International Settlements, and so on. Now, the reason why they are the policy makers is because they, they both have policy expertise. You know, they, they employ a lot of people who have previously been in government, um, and they've got the time to sit and think. Now, there is no direct relationship. So I'm not saying that the World Economic Forum is, is calling the shots here. I am simply saying that when the COVID thing came along, the combination of these three factors that I've talked about all kicked in together. So the first thing was politicians did not know what to do because they're not leaders, they're followers. They follow from the back, they follow from behind um, focus groups and, and whatever else. The media kicked into the fear because that's what they do. And then all of these um, NGOs, like the, you know, obviously the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the whole bunch of other ones, they spotted the opportunity. So let's rewind this, say, a couple of years before that. You can imagine a situation where, you know, uh, Bill Gates is giving a, a lecture at the World Economic Forum for health ministers about vaccines and health, because he's been banging on about this for a number of years. So Matt Hancock, gets invited in, he sits there with his permanent secretary next to him, Bill gives the talk. After the talk, one of Bill's aides come up to him and he says to Bill, look, that guy over there, that's Matt Hancock, he's the UK health minister, um, he, he's a person we want to talk to. So Bill goes over and says, hi Matt, you know, I love the speech you gave in Parliament the other day, something, something like that makes him, then Matt's all impressed with himself because this childhood hero of his knows his name and he thinks he's brilliant and he's just given an impressive talk. Hands are shake, photos are taken. When the COVID thing comes along, and we know this is the case because um, uh, Dominic Cummings in his um, parliamentary um, uh, select committee debrief thing that he did after that he did after COVID, you know, said that Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was on the phone almost every day. And the reason is, is because Matt's got no bloody idea what to do. Um, but these people are ringing up and saying, this is what you do. You know, we've thought about this for a long time. So they were able to push an agenda that they had. And obviously, because Bill is a, is a major um, vaccine investor, he led them down that path. Now, that wasn't just happening with, you know, that institution. It wasn't just vaccines. It was every big organisation that has an agenda to push recognised that this was an opportunity to push their agenda. So I don't think that politicians are necessarily in the pocket of you know these big institutions, I don't think they've been you know corrupted by the occult. Um, I don't even think most of them have got a, a you know a video in Jeffrey Epstein's safe, you know, compelling them to do what it is. It is simply that these people do not know what to do. They are in a job that is simply too big for them. You know, they, they have no understanding of, of you know what they're there for. But then to go down that route, though, let's rewind a little bit from that even. Why is it then that the politicians are in those places if they're actors? If we kind of keep um, zooming out a little bit here, then how did they get to those positions, and what were the kind of forces that got them there? I guess, or you know, do, do you have a do you have an opinion on that, or, or do you just think that you know it's just a quirk of the, the nature of the nature of democracy? Well, they're they're there because they are uh, sufficiently pliable. So I mentioned to you that I'd been involved in politics for a long time. Um, and, you know, I've, I've completely burnt all my bridges now. And the amount of 
rather hostile text messages I've sent to everybody I know who's involved in the political sphere saying over the last two years saying, what the bloody hell are you doing and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm, I'm completely out of it now. But before then, um, you know, I briefly considered getting involved. And I got in touch with, you know, the guy who does the sort of the, the selection for the, the candidate selection. And really, he only had one question for me. And that question was, uh, what would you do if you were asked to support a policy um, that you fundamentally disagreed with? And my answer to that was, I would give the leadership and the whips every opportunity to convince me. Uh, but ultimately, I would vote my conscience because I was there to serve the interests of constituents and, and the nation as a whole, not the party. And very quickly after that, it was, okay, yeah, thanks for getting in touch. That was it. People who want to make their own decisions are filtered out at a very early stage. Not only that, but what I've described about the, the prosperity equation, if you understand that, if you understand how prosperity is generated in this new dynamic, necessarily you will come up with the conclusions that are not in the interest of the existing system. So even if you were to get through, you would find yourself advocating things that are diametrically opposed to the interests of the system. That old capital expansion, um, debt growth, credit fueled whole system that the, that the institutions acquire. So you would not rise through the ranks. The way that you rise through the ranks and don't get filtered out is if you are a pliable sponge. You know, Matt Hancock is a, is a brilliant example. I mean, they, I mean, they all are. None of them have ever thought deeply about anything. What they will do um, is they will present a smiling face. Um, and, and from their perspective, they're doing the right thing because what, what they think they're doing is, is they are taking best advice. They are listening to experts. And this bleeds out when they talk. So they always have incredible disdain for people who do their own research. They, have, they, you know, they, they always lionize the, um, you know, the expert, the scientists, you know, the, the people, because, because that is what they do, because they are empty vessels. The, the perfect example of this was the Justin Trudeau speech from a couple of days ago, where he came out and he, you know, uh, and he lambasted those truckers for, you know, conspiracy theories and doing their own research. And he's been listening to experts and the right people and stuff like that. It's inconceivable to him that he's not following the correct approach on that. So that's why you get all these politicians who are just basically, you know, empty vessels waiting to be poured into. And, and so these, these bigger organisations, the one who actually have the time because they're not running something, they're not in government, but they have access to the right people and they have access to the tools to make the decisions. They can formulate these, these policies and then basically just drop them on national governments. And, and they can't make them do it, but in a time of crisis, when the politicians know that they need to do something but don't know what it is, that is an absolute prime opportunity for these organisations to push stuff through. Okay, I completely agree with you about um, all of that. I mean, it's again, I have no actual, yeah, I have no physical or kind of visceral like evidence, you know, and nothing tangible that you can that I can say, okay, I'm, I'm holding this up and proving that's the case. But it, yeah, I think you've very accurately portrayed politicians there. It's definitely 
um, my opinion as well, that like it's very difficult. I'm not sure that there's any politician that, you know, for instance, at least in the UK parliament, you could pull out and say this person has any kind of philosophy or, you know, understanding or, or you know, just any kind of yeah, ideas about what they want to bring about in the world. It's just power for power's sake, essentially. But yeah, I mean, the only ones I can think of is, is Putin and Ron DeSantis. I mean, they, they're examples of people who have an idea what they want to achieve. But, you know, apart from those two examples, I mean, all of the rest of them, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But I just want to zoom out one more time back to the to the kind of that link there between the, uh, the financial um, situation and the kind of tyranny we're seeing around the world here, because it is really hard to summarize this, right? Because we're, we're dealing with very, very complex ideas. You're almost having to take in like years and years of understanding economics, which I don't even f- fully understand, and then kind of tying it together with all of these things we're seeing in the world and, and trying to kind of s- see like, okay, h- how has how has this um, resulted in these particular incentives that are leading to the things that we have today? And I think at the beginning there, like we were definitely, we were going down that track and we've kind of moved away from it a little bit more. So I just want to steer back to it a little bit. Okay. With the, the, the situation with fiat money and the break, breakdown of fiat money, the, the way that I would kind of kind of um, su- summarize it is that because there's essentially nowhere to go now, the debt is so high, the only um, possible thing they can do to avoid a, a complete collapse is to kind of take con- complete control at the central bank level over the entire e- economy. And then to, to tie this into the kind of um, COVID stuff is that they essentially need a scapegoat as a reason for doing that, right? And in my view, that the COVID thing it provides like a number of a number of ways that they can um, that they can do that, or, or a number of kind of excuses. Number one, oh, there's this big virus. Oh no, we've had a, a, a complete economic collapse. It was it was the virus's fault, right? That's number one. So it's you know it's not the it's not the fact that the banks have you know um, essentially that your your money is not a on a gold standard and that they've just completely introduced. Um, exponential levels of debt and um, you know we keep just bailing out the banks and people keep running away with money that is actually yours and just inflating it away we're not going to go with that narrative we're going to say covid did it right so that that's one thing and then you've also got um with the kind of vaccine passport thing we're saying okay well everyone you know we all need to to, to have, a, have a vaccine passport for travel this that and the other it creates a reason for a kind of global um system a kind of global panopticon um, whereby everyone is tied into it. It's almost like, you know, you know, no, no country can escape. You know, once the system's in place, they'll say, oh, well, any, any country that doesn't, you know, doesn't go with the, the COVID digital uh, ID, um, you know, that there you can't visit that country because, uh, you know, we don't allow it. So it kind of like forces the whole globe to come under the system. And it's basically like, you know, you either play by the, by the system with the digital ID or, you know, your country is going to become irrelevant because we've got all the big players in this, right? So it kind of brings everyone into this authoritarian system. And then obviously that starts out as a kind of vaccine passport, um, you know, and, oh, it's all for your health, et cetera, so we don't spread the disease. And then very quickly, you've got a social credit system where it's like, okay, well, you know, sorry, you didn't take your latest vaccine, so now we're going to um, tax you. You know, we're going to take the money direct or or you can't go here because, you you know, you did this or that or, or said this or that. And very quickly, you kind of go into a system which is no longer a vaccine passport system, but that that was the Trojan horse to bring in um, a kind of global digital ID whereby governments um, accumulate more and more control. And I agree as well with what you were saying about governments not being able to kind of do their own thing. A big part of this seems to be 
that at the moment you have competition at the nation state level. So things like, you know, you can have nation states which say, you know, we have lower levels of taxation, for instance, and, uh, or, you know, we, have, we're, we uh, aren't doing lockdowns, etc. This system kind of forces into compliance every uh, single nation state because it's like, you know, you can no longer um, go somewhere that's got lower taxes. Like we're going to do it at the global level now, right? Like uh, the, the World Economic Forum or the, you know, um, the, the Bank of International Settlements, something, they're, they're going to just decide all of this stuff. Right, um, or the IMF would, would be another another big player in this. So I'm kind of rambling rambling a little bit um, here on my own thoughts, but I just want to throw that over to you. Like, do you think that that is an accurate summary, or, or like, of the connection between COVID and the financial system? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's two broad themes there. The first is the the way that we sort of got led into this in the first place, and the second is the um, the digital ID. So, I mean, taking each of those in turn. So, the, the first about how did we end up in this? You know, th- there is a line of thinking that you know points to event two hundred one and says, look, you know, this this was obviously all pre-planned. I'm inclined to say, I mean, I am open to that, but I'm inclined to say that it probably wasn't pre-planned. It was simply seized upon and exaggerated. So that effect that I described about the um, about the media. That they go straight for your fear center. They don't want to engage your reason. You know, I, I think that is the case. And I think they've, they've tried this on a number of previous occasions. So if you remember, it was only a couple of years before this, but they were trying to hype up Zika. You know, that, and there's no particular reason why Zika couldn't have gone as crazy as this thing did. You know, it, and I mean, if you look back every couple of years, I, I think it's something like Time Magazine, they've got a, um, a different front cover about, you know, the, the killer virus of the day. You know, this one just landed. So I don't think it was orchestrated. However, I definitely think that people recognised its potential very quickly when it started to really push over the edge. And so those people who had various agendas were very, very quick to push them out. And and I mentioned the, the, the really weird tangent into the abolition of cash that was thrown out. There was a media line to take um, very early on in the pandemic. Now, one of the things I talk about in the thread, where I think the thing that you're alluding to there is the is the digital IDs, um, and that's because look, if you are going to have a central bank digital currency, you can't be running that on a bloody national insurance database that was you know designed in the in the 1990s. You, you need a a much quicker, much responsive, a, a digitally native um, ID system, and and I think a lot of that is what was driving the insane push for the backs. Um, I mean, I mean, this is obviously something that Brett Weinstein talks a lot about, you know, it makes no sense the extent to which they have pushed the backs and suppressed everything else. And I suspect the most pernicious aspect, the, the bit that sticks around from this longer than anything else is going to be the vaccine passports, even if they climb down on everything else. So you might say, okay, well, what's the point of a vaccine passport if there's no vaccine mandate, if you don't actually need the vaccine? So, for example, here in the UK, and, and this is why I don't think that, you know, these governments are directly controlled by the, you know, the supranational powers, the Bank of International Settlements and the World Economic Forum and so on, because you can see when the political pressure gets strong enough, as has been in the case in the UK, you know, they, they can break from those guys to save their own skin. Um, but what Boris Johnson has talked about, and he's done this several times, is he said, I think going forward, we will have, as it were, a 
um, vaccine passport for travel abroad. That's pretty much a, a quote of what he said. So even if they get rid of the vaccine mandates, you know, it will be something like, um, yes, the, the, the vaccine is, is, is optional, um, but all the same, when you're coming to our country, you know, we just want to know, you know, what your health status is. You know, if, if you're diabetic or, you know, if, or if there's something, you know, we basically broadly just want to know what's going on with you. Now, you, you compare that to the amount of pushback that we're willing to give. You know, in, in the UK, we've got the NHS 100K um, who are pushing back hard against vaccine passports, and they seem to have won that battle. Um, are, are they all going to, you know, threaten to walk out if we maintain the NHS app on your phone? And that starts getting used every time you access your doctors. You know, no, frankly, no. You know, it's, you know, some of us can see how suspicious that is, but we're not going to, we're not going to march on Downing Street over it. And what will happen is over time, more and more things will get added onto that. It won't be just an NHS thing anymore. You know, your, your car insurance and your MOT status and your tax status will start being linked to it and, and they will gradually roll that out. You know, again, in, in Canada, the truckers thing, you know, those truckers are, you know, basically giving up their livelihoods to, to dominate Ottawa, to end the VAX mandate. If the uh, if Global Homo turns around and says, okay, you know, we're going to get rid of the mandates, but we're keeping the vaccine passport, um, and we're going to keep your health status on it, you know, those truckers are not going to carry on dominating Ottawa for that. You know, they're going to take the winning and they're going to go. So I can pretty much guarantee that they will keep that digital ID system. And once you've got that, um, and you've got you know whatever it is like ninety percent uptake. It's very easy then to roll out a, a central bank digital currency because I mean, you you need a digital ID, you need a bit of tie it to an individual. Um, so that will remain. Work on central bank digital currencies will continue, although they are they are nowhere near ready at the moment. And the great hope for for people like us who who believe in the whole sovereign individual uh, movement is that basically this system collapses before they got their ducks in a row. Because even though they've got that digital ID now, although they haven't quite got 100% uptake to it, uh, the central bank digital thing isn't, isn't ready yet. Um, you know, and hopefully people will voluntarily make the shift to forms of digital IDs, um, which is probably going to be the next thing, big thing to come out of the NFT movement. That's a bit nascent at the moment, but it, it's moving in that direction where you will be able to have a non-fungible digital ID that you control and it can be anonymous, and you can have multiple of them if you want, but it's the way you interact with the digital world and you hold your digital assets. And the Bitcoin movement, and people are going to essentially opt out of the, of the failing institutions that we have. And if that is ready and viable at the point of the fiat money system collapse, then we've got an alternative. And we have a, a, a basically a, a sovereign individual future. Yeah, so I actually agree with a lot of that. Um... The only area that I would disagree is whether a kind of decentralized digital ID of some sort is going to be an alternative and whether we even need an alternative in that sense. First of all, my, a, a big concern that I have is that it seems like the, the WEF has quite a cozy relationship with some of these, you know, alternative cryptocurrencies, in particular Ethereum. And I worry whether that is exactly what they're going to use as a kind of fallback if they can't make their own central bank digital currency happen, whether they will piggyback on something like Ethereum 
um, and make it happen through that. And I don't, I don't know what necessarily whether that will happen, but I worry that that is a, quite a big attack vector. And that's why I'm, I'm a Bitcoin only um, guy. Um, but yeah, it, it, everything else that you mentioned, I, I absolutely agree with. And yeah, I, I think that their plan, their kind of, it, it's so ambitious, essentially. Governments, as we both know, are terrible at pretty much everything. And um, I think that this is inevitably doomed to failure. But as you say, there is a finish line that if they get past it, it will be incredibly difficult to reverse it. And that is central bank digital currencies. If they just transfer all your money into, onto a CBDC, you have got very little hope of escaping that because that's essentially kind of where they're at in China, right? And wh- why is it that you can't have a, a successful revolution in China? Or at least we, we haven't seen one, despite it being a totalitarian uh, country for so long. Well, it's because they've kind of completed that um, system of technocratic authoritarianism, you know, using using technology to um, as, as a kind of weapon against the people. Um, and right now, as you say, we're, we're not there yet in in, um, in the UK and, and America and, you know, in, in the West generally, like we don't have that. And I agree that there is a kind of, there is a window opportunity here. And I think that that's why, um, you know, the kind of Bitcoin people are really, really pushing Bitcoin as an alternative because it's like, I, the way I view it is it's like, that's a life raft right there. You know, we have a life raft. It's either if you if you stay in the system as you are, it's a matter of time until they just convert you over onto a central bank digital currency. They'll say it's for your own good. They'll say, oh, you know, it's going to be really great for you. And, you know, we can do all the taxing at stores. You don't even need to do your own taxes. And, uh, you know, it, it, like, it gives you this and it gives you that and you get all these great benefits and, you know, but they'll probably end up kind of partnering with corp- corporations and saying, hey, use this central bank digital com- digital currency. You're going to get 10% off your Uber or whatever, you know, and, and a lot of people will just go for it. They'll just be like, oh, okay, great. I'm getting, you know, some money off this thing because, you know, governments partner with corporations all the time, right? Like that is, you know, one of the foundational um, tenets of fascism. And that's kind of where we are now with with governments essentially all partnering with Pfizer. I mean, Pfizer is, is you know, a, another pillar of government at this point. Um, but anyway, I, I'm digressing. But, um. but no, I mean, I agree with you, and, and I am optimistic. And, and I, I think on this one, um, even though I know that it is exactly like you say, it is a almost a sort of a 50-50 proposition as to whether we're going to have a sovereign individual future or whether we are going to have a um, a deep surveillance and sort of digital prison system that, that the state controls. I'm actually more on the side that I think freedom is going to win. Um, why do I think that? So look at where we are with with Bitcoin. Um, the parallel is the internet in 1997. So in 1997, the internet had about 300 million global users. And at the time, it was the fastest growing technology ever. It was growing at 63% a year. And we all know what happened with the internet. You know, 1997, it was nascent. One or two people that you knew might be using it. Um, and effectively, within a decade, certainly two, it's become entirely all pervasive. You know, every grandmother has a smartphone. Um, you know, half the people you know now work from home, and, and so on. Uh, it, it has it has effectively dominated. The reason I bring up 1997 for the internet is because that's effectively where we are with Bitcoin. So Bitcoin also has 300 million global users at this point. 
but it's not growing at 63% a year, it's growing at 119%. It is growing twice as fast as the fastest technology adoption ever. You know, we are going to be on track um, within just three or four years of hitting, well, actually probably less than that, probably, probably three years of hitting a billion users. It will expand from there. Um, now, Bitcoin is a bit clunky at the moment. You know, you and I can make payments on it, but you're, you're a little bit itchy every time you make a payment that you've got that long string of characters right and it's all gone through. You certainly wouldn't want your mum buying a house on Bitcoin just yet. But this is analogous to, again, the internet in 1997 with the dial-up modems and trying to connect to the pages in the long complicated did you wait the whole eco structure is going to grow around it and and actually i am more positive about some of the other layer ones um, and some of the other projects that are going on because a lot of that will be actually settled to bitcoin as the ultimate store value and they're just providing um uh, infrastructure that goes around it that makes it more compelling to to the average normie um, and we could find ourselves by the end of this decade in a world where everybody has bitcoin the um, apps are incredibly intuitive and easy to use, so everybody does use them, um, and people have a non-state value of exchange. And at that point, the fiat system, if it were to collapse then, um, would not be such a big deal. I mean, it would be a big deal for some people, but actually, in the overall, it wouldn't be that big a deal because so many people would already be on the new system that you can effectively step across. That, for me is one possible future, but it feels more likely than government gets its shit together and builds an incredibly complicated, demanding um, digital infrastructure necessary to run um, pervasive digital IDs that track you at all times and central bank digital currencies and everything else that goes along with it. That said, China do seem to be doing it. You know, they, they are pretty close. They're, they're not quite a fully um, digitally native um, currency at this point, but I think they will achieve it in the next few years. And, and that is possibly, um, you know, and this I mentioned this in my, in my tweet thread, that, you know, for, from, from our institutions, uh, their preferred order is, one, keep the existing system running, but they can't because it is flawed. It will fail. That is a mathematical certainty. I don't know exactly when, it could be next week or it could be 10 years from now, but it will fail. So they can't have that. Second option is their own central bank digital currency, but that requires them pulling off quite a difficult trick. Option three is if they can't have their own, they have to adopt somebody else's. And probably the only two viable choices at that point are gonna be Bitcoin or the Chinese system. So we've moved to a system where effectively the Chinese yen um, replaces the petrodollar and becomes the you know the primary mechanism for international exchange. Obviously, they do not want that. So, if it comes to that, they will choose Bitcoin. Will they though? Like, I'm not I'm not convinced about that because it like China seems to be uh, the model for the world right now. You know, China. It's almost like China is ruling the roost. Yeah, so I mean, so certainly I think they, they see a lot of what they're doing and they like it and they want their own, but they still want the control. They don't want to hand the control over. You know, one of the reasons why the US has been so dominant over this last century is because um, energy is priced in dollars. 
you know, if you want to buy and I mean, let's say a, a, an Argentinian firm wants to buy oil from a French firm, they, they do it in US dollars. Everybody, everybody exchanges energy in dollars. Um, and that's been a huge source of, of power for the US. It's meant that effectively they get free energy. Um, effectively means that they are able to exchange pieces of paper with the president's face on it for whatever they want to buy throughout the world. So it's allowed them to, to live a, a life of prosperity that they aren't really entitled to. And they back it up with the US military. Um, there is no way they want to hand that power over to a geopolitical rival. Um, and actually, for, for that and other reasons, I think it's fairly inevitable at this point that energy will be priced in, in Bitcoin before long. Um, it's, it's also why um, I'm, I'm confident that the, um, the US will not throw Russia out of the SWIFT system over this whole Ukraine business, which has been talked up. I mean, that's just nobody in Ukraine or Russia is, is thinking about war. It's, it's, it's been confected and, and talked up in the US and UK. But I, but but anyway, whatever disputes arise there, the US will not throw Russia out of the SWIFT system because if they did, uh, Russia would just start pricing its natural gas in Bitcoin instead. And that would accelerate the adoption of all energy being priced in Bitcoin, which I think is going to happen anyway. So, you know, if, if, if I could get one message across to anybody listening to this, is if you don't have any Bitcoin, get off zero. Get at least a little bit. You know, my first purchase into Bitcoin was, was just £100. You know, just just to just to see how it was done. You know, I went on one of the exchanges, bought hundred pounds worth. I probably forgot about it for about a year. Um, you know, if nothing, do that. Ten pounds, even whatever it is, but get off zero so that you know how to exchange in this stuff and you know how to how how to acquire it. Um, because I th I think this whole economic collapse, the the transition to whatever comes next, which is could well be Bitcoin, it could be something else. You know, you want to have that life raft. Definitely. I feel like that's a really good point to start closing things off because normally I kind of ask, you know, what are the things that we can be doing uh, to kind of become more more sovereign and to kind of help ourselves through this like transitionary period, um, you know, in, in history where where we are kind of like facing facing down totalitarianism. But I think that you've kind of already nailed it really with that, and and I would totally agree with it. So this has been such a good conversation and. Um, yeah, I, I hope that kind of the listeners have um, like got some value from it because, you know, I know that I have and it's, uh, you know, we have darted around a bit and we're covering some really kind of complex topics. So it's quite hard to keep the conversation on one thing because you kind of go down one avenue and then, um, you know, you kind of get pulled, pulled aside. So, uh, you know, I hope that people have kind of managed to stick with it. And I really appreciate kind of all of your knowledge you brought to the table. I feel like this kind of justifies maybe another conversation down the, down the line if you're, if you're open to it. I'd be absolutely delighted to. Thank you. Yeah. So it'd be great to kind of go into a few more areas because I feel like we've only really kind of scratched the surface of all of these topics. So I'll leave you with any kind of final words if you want to just kind of let people know where they can find you as well. Um, yeah, I mean, actually, there, there's there's not a lot of ways to find me at the moment. I, I do post on Twitter, and my handle is kingbingo underscore. Um, I was one of the very first people to start using Twitter, so I just picked a nonsense handle, and it sort of stuck ever since, so you can find me on there. Um, and, you know, actually, one of the things I might talk to you about in a future podcast is, is I need to find a way to try and engage with people more. Um, you know, whether that is, whether I've got to just bite the bullet and sit down and write a book or do a podcast or a YouTube channel, or whatever it is. But I mean, it's obviously something you're doing. So maybe I'll, I'll pick your brains on the next time we talk. 
Yeah, you're absolutely welcome to. And um, yeah, so thanks a lot for, for coming on. And I, I hope you start writing that book as well. Yeah, it, it would be a challenge, but um, yeah, maybe maybe I maybe I should. Great. Cheers. Thanks very much.